welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, and I guide you gently through another show, not a busy week. Got me co-host here, Frank Washkirk, our executive editor. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Yep. Good to uh, be with you. Tom Brady's finally retired, Frank. Is that well, for a- now. Do you think he'll, do you think this one is final? We'll see if it lasts. Uh, it's interesting. There's a there's a quarterback spot open in San Francisco. I thought that. I hometown, thought he might have been there. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we're going to talk about some stories this week. Horrible story, obviously from Memphis, the uh, police uh, incident there and the the uh, killing of Tyree Nichols. We'll talk about the aftermath of that. We'll talk about how Pfizer's been dealing with a right wing activist group called Project Veritas. It's Black History Month, just kicked off, so we'll reflect on that. We will have a Super Bowl preview. Uh, the game is in 10 days. And lots of agency stories, people moves, and M&A activity. So we'll get into that. But first of all, we'll talk to Ulrika Dikoen, who's our Group Chief Communications Brand and Sustainability Officer at AXA. And uh, Ulrika's calling in from Paris. So welcome to the show, Ulrika. How are you doing? Hello, hello, Steve. Hello, Frank. I'm I'm very well, thank you. Very happy to be with you guys. Yeah, well, thanks for calling in, in during your evening. Uh, six hours ahead of us, I think. So uh, it's going to be great to get your perspective. AXA, massive insurance company. Um, tell us a bit about AXA and... Um, their role is obviously a big global company, but maybe a little bit about your presence in the US and then talk about the role that you play there. Yes, of course. So AXA, is a, it's a fairly young company. So it, it moved from being a small mutual to a large international company in the 80s. It's uh, pretty global. We have uh, you know, big operations in Europe, France, of course, but we're also very present in the United States through our subsidiary AXA Excel. We acquired the Excel Group which is one of the largest commercial insurers in 2018, I believe. And we sold our uh, life and savings business as well in the U.S. And we're also present in Asia. We are multi-liner. We're 50% um, PNC, 30% life and savings, and then 15% health and 5% asset management. And... Let's not forget, around 110,000 employees across the planet. Yeah, so big organization, and you're as chief comms and brand and sustainability officer. So you got a lot on your plate, yeah? I do, I do. I, I don't complain. Or your ASEAN, I, 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 I should say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get bored. I've been with the company for 15 years, almost always uh, working in corporate comms. I started in the asset management uh, subsidiary, right? before the subprime crisis. So so I've got a good learning curve there in terms of uh, crisis communication. I then moved to our insurance business uh, and more specifically the uh, holding we had that invested in uh, emerging markets, um, Africa, Latin America and, uh, and Middle East for five years. And then I moved back to Paris and I had a little step outside of the pure communications um, field by becoming uh, the Chief of Staff of Thomas Buber, the current CEO, when he was appointed in 2016, which was a great experience. And I'm heading this uh, my current role since 2019. And yeah, we're pretty busy. Yeah, for sure. And you had a bit of time in the French Interior Ministry as well. So uh, 
very different experience than when you would travel to New York for the UN and stuff like that. I did. I did. Great experience. Yeah. Five years working as a speechwriter for, yeah. for a French politician. Yeah. Starting the current role in 2019, clearly, you know, March 2020 hits, there's a global pandemic. How did you address that as a communicator, as a, in ter- with, with 110,000 staff around the world? And what was the impact of that from the European perspective? I think our listeners in the US would love to hear that, and how, how it was for you from the Paris-France point of view. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's fair to say that as many companies, we were strangely, in, in hindsight, it's amazing how how could we be surprised by that? You know, having heard the first um, signs of the pandemic in, in, in Asia and we have operations in China. So, but, but somehow what is also amazing, so maybe, maybe a lot of learnings to do on how companies, uh, um, you know, read these early alerts and act upon them, but then also quite impressive as many other companies, how from one day to another, um, you're able to bring a whole organization to work from home with tools that fortunately enough we had, but we were absolutely not using to the extent that we are now using them, of course. Several of our companies had already been you know, implementing flexible working from home possibilities, but not it was not a majority. So we had also to learn with that. And of course, with this incredible crisis uh, context where you know, which was pretty gloomy, I, I would say, uh, for our staff and our team. So um, I guess, you know, it was basically going back to, to yeah, to the basics. Now, what, what do you want to, we said, well, the first thing we need to, to do is make sure that we get a regular um, updates with all our teams, all our staff. So it was, you know, recreating all our internal formats on Teams, <laughs> which is what we're using um, starting very poorly, so I hosted a lot of town halls with, you know, the uh, Amazon delivery guy uh, ringing my bell, my kids running around. So, again, I think I yeah. think you know we 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 moved back to some pretty basic stuff, but there was a feeling that um, you know it was also a possibility to reinvent a lot of what we were doing, a lot of the formats. And what I take away mostly, and 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 what was for me a. a, a, a a huge uh, improvement is the, the, I would say, the tone of voice that leadership in the company learned to use during that crisis when they talked to staff. So in this very, um, very new style of, you know, accepting that you don't have all the answers, um, being open about what you know, what you don't know for the time being, being open about what you're trying, what is failing, um, some emotions coming across a lot of those uh, those discussions, um, and uh, and yeah, and I think in terms of how we engage people, this hasn't we haven't moved back to to the way we did it before, and as I think quite a lot of companies, we've seen engagement rates going up quite drastically throughout this crisis, and 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 they are lasting at at a very high level because people have the memory of what the company did for them during the crisis and, 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 you know, and how a lot of that dialogue has opened up and, and has not stopped since then. Yeah. Is employee engagement much higher on, on your agenda? It is, it is definitely, um, it is definitely, it is also high on our agenda because we are discovering also the struggles of hybrid working. But now that we're moving to a more, you know, not crisis, led, I would say, hybrid ways of working. We're also seeing the struggles behind that and how we, the risk of losing 
connection. I, I don't think it is as radical as I've seen uh, some of the offices in the United States when I was there last. So I think we, we are, you know, in Europe, most of Europe, we are, we are managing to have our people in the offices at least two or three days a week without any sort of pressure or it's, 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 it's really a, a pace that we found. Um, um, but yeah, these people are not in the office every day now. So how do you keep that sense of belonging? And AXA, you know, AXA is a, is a, is a company that has a very strong corporate culture uh, since the very beginning when it was founded. And so we are very dependent on that sense of belonging. If people don't get that, it's easier for us to lose them uh, on our way. And we're, you know, we're facing not not huge, huge, massive challenges in terms of turnover and retention, but we're starting to see the quiet quitting phenomenon, uh, the, you know, the war talent, of course. So yeah, definitely employee engagement is very, very important. And how about Paris as a city? Has it come back to its bustling self? It's a great city. Everybody loves it. Everybody likes being out on the streets. It's, New York was the same, but it's, it's still getting back to normal in New York. How about Paris? No, I, I would say we're completely back to normal. Um, you see, uh, you know, here the government has been very, very uh, generous and supportive of small businesses, uh, so which has kept the economy alive pretty much. We will have to deal with that spending later, probably, but that's another another topic. So, no, I would say Paris is back. Tourism is back very, very uh, clearly. We saw it this yeah. summer. And, uh, yeah, I would say it's, it's time for you to come, Frank, and visit. <laughs> yeah, great city and uh, one of my favorite places. So I do look forward to visiting again. Now, one of your parts of your role is sustainability. So um, – Tell us about sustainability from a European perspective versus U.S. because we often think that Europe's a bit further ahead in terms of the agenda and the way people think about it. But uh, just talk, talk to us about that. Yes, of course. Um, I would distinguish two things. I, I would really focus on the E, the environmental piece, which which has been really dominating the ESG agenda in, in Europe. Um, we are, of course, you know, work. There's a lot of work and a lot of topics that companies are starting to discuss and work on on the on the social, on the inequalities, on the DNI pillars. But um, environment has really dominated the agenda, and it's true. What we're, the, I would say, the main difference is that, you know, as of today, and it could change. It's not a political issue, so there is no difference between what. Um, you know, any, uh, you know, any political party will think of of this. It, it has been, it is, it is a priority for the European government, for local governments. Uh, we're seeing, um, you know, effects of climate change everywhere, and so there is more consensus, I would say, than in the U.S. What is difficult, and also difficult in terms for communicators, is that um, a lot of companies here in Europe, especially in the financial sector, were pretty advanced on commitments and voluntary engagement. So stuff that they did because they felt they had to, and this was where they wanted to, to go. With the huge uh, um, you know, legislation that we are integrating right now that comes from, from, from the European level, all these engagements are now, now um, purely uh, regulatory, they are mandatory. So it's a whole different debate. So I would say there is consensus. There is a lot of work, very technical work, which sometimes, um, you know, sometimes makes you forget about why you're doing that stuff, actually, because it gets so technical and so, uh, to be frank, um, difficult. So the dominating fear is greenwashing, clearly, because, again, it's not like there's a book. If you take insurance, for example, you know, we're working on 
how do you measure um, insured emissions? Like, how do you measure the carbon that you insure? This is a completely new, you know, methodology. There's no book for that. So, so you're going to try, and it's probably the right thing. You're going to probably not be right in the first instance. You're going to try to reduce that carbon footprint of your your insurable, uh, you know, uh, portfolio. Um, but people are really the debate is really dominated by this, by greenwashing, a lot of pressure from uh, from NGOs. And a lot of expectations from from regulators that, especially for the financial sector, to move pretty quickly on topics which are extremely complex and and technical. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about um, consensus because, um, yeah, there's not a consensus on anything in the States, really. You've got two polarized groups who pretty much believe the diametric opposite. So I guess it must be easier to get things done when you do have a consensus on thing like, things like climate change, fossil fuels, et cetera. So interesting. And obviously you're involved, you're in the financial industry. We're all trying to work out what's ahead of us in 2023 in terms of the economy and trends like that. Are we going to go into a recession? There's, there's no sort of black and white answer to this question, but what are you feeling in Europe and, uh, you know, from the AXA point of view about that, about the year ahead? Yeah, so- it's, it's interesting because our colleagues, uh, a couple of our colleagues who were in Davos um, 10 days ago just came back. And, and it's very interesting. Um, I, I, I love how Davos is a sort of, you know, pulse of, of, of the economic morale of, of, of the world. Mm. And, and, and precisely looking at European business leaders, they were actually, uh, it was interesting that the, the morale is pretty good, interestingly enough. So pretty confident. Um, and uh, everybody's struggling a bit to to understand the the I would say the the decoupling be- between the, the the uncertainty that we have. You know, the war in Ukraine feels pretty close here in Europe. Um, we've been through a winter where basically we've been telling our employees, you know, we've been decreasing the temperature. It's actually freezing in our offices. Um, we're we're preventing from what happens if we have a, a, a shortages in energy. So everybody feels a bit relieved that we're past this. Um, and uh, and maybe it's just that, you know, companies in Europe have sort of navigated pretty tough times and come out quite strongly in the past three to four years. But there is this surprising level of still confidence despite the indicators. So I, I, I hope they're right. And uh, and we can look at uh, at the outlook with with a bit of optimism despite everything. Yeah, amen to that. And uh, yeah, obviously, we hope that the uh, war in Ukraine comes to an end as soon as possible. But uh, yeah, good to hear there's a bit of optimism in the air. So thanks for that, Ulrika. And great to find out more about your role and um, AXA and get the European perspective. And we'll uh, get your input on some of these news stories this week. Frank, horrific scenes in the video that was released by Memphis police of the uh, brutal attack on Tyree Nicholson. Talk us through the aftermath of that. Well, uh, you just said it, and we're recording this right now, actually, as the funeral service for Tyree Nichols is going on. Uh, the vice president is there. The Reverend Al Sharpton is doing the eulogy. You know, it's certainly getting a lot of attention, and it has renewed calls uh, for some police reform at a federal level. But but I, I think it's fair to say not the same level of a push that you would have seen in mid-2020. So it was very interesting to watch this burst into the news cycle because... 
uh, there were a lot of rumors on Twitter for days about uh, the level of brutality in this video and, and a lot of warnings that it was going to be very difficult to watch and that it was going to be very brutal and very violent. Um, and it certainly was once it was released. It was interesting that it was released on a Friday evening at about seven o'clock. Um, I, I I am interested to see legislatively if, if anything happens. I'm not optimistic any major police reform bills will go forward, but um, I'm interested to see what happens there. Yeah, it just beggars belief, actually, that you see scenes like this from people who are supposed to be protecting and serving citizens. Um, it really does. It's, it's, it's not easy to watch, and it, it's... It, it's just incredible that this stuff still goes on, but we know it does, and we know it's widespread. Um, obviously, businesses um, based in Memphis have to think of their employees and the impact on them. I think FedEx made a statement, and uh, we spoke to some people in the area. Yes, and um, FedEx especially to highlight, because he was an employee there, um, issued a memo to colleagues uh, about his death. And um, it, it, it's it's just a really difficult situation for a lot of people that uh, you know really hoped we were beyond this sort of thing as a country and as a society and 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 clearly we're not um and um you know looking at the way the fedex handled it i i, I think the the message they gave to employees and co-workers of his was was correct it was it was authentic and appropriate yeah and uh, the family would wanted people to celebrate Tyree's life and celebrate him rather than um, concentrating solely on the horrific, horrific events that led to, to his death. Um, Ulrika, what, what is, is this story big in Europe as well? Is it, has it got a lot of um, coverage in um, the other part of the world? It has some coverage, not to the extent um, the, the other, you know, horrible um, death of, uh, of uh, George Floyd. Yeah. Yes, exactly. George Floyd a couple of years ago, which was an interesting case for, for us in terms of communication, because we had, you know, a lot of pressure from our colleagues uh, in the U S to, to take a stance globally as AXA. And of course, uh, Frank, you were discussing how complicated the situation, you know, police, you know, there's not the same, uh, I would say, the same debates around uh, police violence in, in other countries. So it was really difficult to, 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 to show empathy without getting into a debate, which probably 70% of our employees would not have understood why AXA was taking a stand. So that was, that was an interesting conversation. But I, I agree with you. The, Im- the images are, you know, pretty horrifying. Yeah, I think... Um communicators have to decide don't they because this comes up more and more often and as you can't comment on everything and you're you're right you're if if only seven you know 70 percent of your employees are not affected then maybe that doesn't quite hit the threshold of something that you would weigh in on or maybe regional leaders would do it or you do it in a different manner but it's certainly something and we'll talk about this in terms of reputation crises next it's certainly something that every communicator has to have on their agenda and has to have a plan about how to react so yeah um so rest in peace Tyree, and um just hope that we can come to a system where um these sort of incidents don't happen um, another sort of slightly egregious incident, Frank, was uh, Pfizer being um, targeted by activist group Project Veritas. 
with a video that kind of went viral on social media. Talk us through that story. Yeah, and, and Project Veritas, and I think a lot of our, our readers and our listeners know, it sort of portrays itself as, as undercover journalists. And in this case, they claim to have a video with a Pfizer employee, um, though there, there wasn't a record uh, at the time of this video's release of whether or not he worked for the company or that he really even existed. And talking about uh, the similarities between Pfizer's research and what could have occurred at a lab in China in 2019, essentially saying that that Pfizer, uh, the point Project Veritas was trying to make was that Pfizer could could manipulate the virus or, or could, uh, you know, could use its research in a, in a way it shouldn't be. Uh, Pfizer put out a statement on this. Now, there was a bit of a lapse in time between when the video came out and when Pfizer put out the statement. Um, almost a full day, I would say. And, you know, really tried to clarify uh, what it does and what it doesn't do in its research uh, in very scientific terms. Um, I, I just think that that disinformation and misinformation about the virus, about uh, COVID-19, about the vaccines and the boosters and what they do and what they do not do and their effectiveness, the disinformation around it on social media is everywhere. It's more out there than it, it was pre Elon Musk buying Twitter. I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge problem. I think it was probably a huge problem for a company like Pfizer or Moderna or, or BioNTech uh, beforehand. And this just makes it worse. Um, so it's, I, I think it's appropriate Pfizer responded. I think it's good. They did in the scientific language that they did, but this is, this is a huge problem and it's going to be an ongoing problem. Yeah. There's a lot of layers to it, aren't there? Yeah. Because uh, I've, I've blogged about it, actually. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. Yeah, and it um, it reminds me of of talking to a crisis comms expert a few years ago and, and just hearing them say, look, he is a company. You have to be prepared for absolutely anything, even things that you just can't imagine, and, and just how difficult it is to do that, not knowing what's around the corner. Yeah, and if you don't respond, uh, you right. get accused of you know tacitly being defensive and and being afraid to respond. So it's, I think, uh, Ulrika, every, as a communications professional, especially with social media being so ubiquitous, every communicator is going to have incidents where something comes out on social and you have to make those decisions, don't you, about do we reply? And if we do, how do we reply? And who do I need to gather in the room, if you like, to to make those decisions? How does that work for you at AXA? I mean, I mean, this story pretty much is, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty close to, to my worst nightmare, honestly, as a communicator, because um, you're, you're right. I mean, is there really something, especially for a, for a science-based company, um, they deal with complex stuff. Uh, nothing is, you know, it, it's a language that is difficult to understand for the broader people. And then you have this, uh, this uh, noise uh, of, you know, complotism. I don't know if you say it in, in, in in the US, but of disinformation of people. So, so it becomes really, really complicated for rational um, arguments and, 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 and scientific communication to, to convince. I do think you need to react probably more for your internal people. You need to show that you're not letting this sort of without an answer. To be fair, I don't think you will convince, you know, I, I think they just have to forget about convincing the people who are ready to believe in those arguments. Um, and, uh, and probably maybe see if there are some lessons in what you can do proactively, you know, to um, to rebuild trust a little bit 
if you think there's still uh, you know there's still some that you can rebuild with with some of those people uh, uh, um, conveying those those crazy messages. Yeah, but I think it's, you're uh, right. Yeah, it's it's an interesting case. Yeah, you're right that you're not going to convince the people that believe that sort of uh, misinformation. They are, they've got their opinions and, you know, they're all mostly anonymous on Twitter. Mm-hmm. They're bots. They've, they just, and whenever we covered it, our journalists got attacked. I'm, sh- I'm sure I'll get attacked when my blog is pub- published. Um, but they're not, they don't have the courage to actually do that in person, right? They're, um, it was interesting, Frank, that Project Veritas was actually banned permanently from Twitter. So was the founder, James O'Keefe. And then uh, Elon Musk reinstated them in November when he came back on. And surprise, surprise, since Elon did that with a lot with Veritas and a lot of other groups, there's been a lot more misinformation on, on social media. Who, who knew? You know, so it's... Uh, it's not a great surprise, is it? It's not. And and it's a shame for a lot of reasons. But there's a huge issue with this in, in, in this country and I think everywhere where, uh, you know, a lot of people see a lot of things on websites and have trouble determining, you know, what is an authentic source? What is a, what is well reported and what, what isn't? And uh, something like this that, that portends to be, you know, real, thoughtful, edited journalism, documentary style journalism uh, unfortunately, is going to convince some people that it's true. So uh, it's a big problem. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to say kudos to the mainstream media for not picking it up. Uh, the only person who picked it up, not surprisingly, was Tucker Carlson, who's right. not a journalist anyway. He's a propagandist. And Senator Marco Rubio wrote a letter to Pfizer's CEO um, picking up on it, you know, for his own uh, agenda. So, yeah, it's an, it's an ongoing problem. And uh, there's a Every communicator needs to have a plan for this as well. And it's going to happen to your brand at some point. So, yeah, we'll follow that uh, closely. I mean, to be honest, it doesn't really matter whether this guy works for Pfizer or not or works for Pfizer, does it? You know, the the fact is Pfizer is doing nothing different to any other pharma company in terms of what it does around the research, around drugs, around vaccines, due diligence. It's, It's business as usual for any company. They're not doing anything different. They're not, yes, they did make a lot of money during COVID and they did, and so did their CEO, but they also produced a vaccine very quickly. People forget we were, people were dying in hospital in their hundreds of thousands. We had refrigerators outside hospitals with dead bodies being stored because there was nowhere to put them. People couldn't grieve their loved ones. And some pharma companies came up with treatments that were, we're going to deal with COVID, you know, so people have short memories on that. And uh, I certainly don't forget it. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people don't either. So, um, yeah, a sadly typical case study. Let's talk uh, Black History Month. It started on the 1st of February and seems particularly apposite. But each year it's a good opportunity to reflect, isn't it? Yeah. And look, it's especially more so because of the story that we unfortunately talked about at the, the beginning of the roundup yeah. of the podcast. Um, because this is, uh, there is still a lot of inequity and inequality out there in, in society. And, um, you know, uh, we're, we're looking forward to the brands that do initiatives throughout the month on it. Um, we're, we have an op-ed going on the site about it, uh, Wednesday afternoon that you can see Thursday morning. And, um, you know, there are a lot of different perspectives, uh, about how to, how to increase diversity throughout the industry. Um, how to open it up to new people. Um, and I think that, um, 
I think the effort has been there, but you know, the numbers have not panned out yet. And I think we're all looking forward to the numbers catching up. Yeah. And you want to make sure it's not just a month of the year that mm-hmm. these issues are throughout the year. Well, Rika, what a, uh, ethnic diversity is a big issue around the world. How does uh, AXA uh, address that, both in terms of your own staffers and your communications team, but also in terms of showing up when people talk about issues like this? Yeah, I think I think we are we are you know with with the same intent trying to at least you know accelerate the, the in our recruitment that we have a, that we have a, a really a true diverse. Um, workforce and that we can uh, overcome any bias that would prevent some you know some of our talents to 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 raise to the top um to, to illustrate one of the you know differences one of the issues we have in france it's it's illegal to 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 sort of track racial ethnic differences um which makes it quite difficult for the whole country because it's it's difficult to improve what you can me- can't measure but we actually cannot measure uh, um racial diversity uh, of our workforce. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's illegal. Uh, so we try to overcome it through other, other uh, stuff. What we do is we survey uh, inclusion. We, have, we are we're one of the first European companies to, to do a regular pulse on how people feel included uh, and they can self-qualify as, min- as minorities, which helps us to assess what level of you know, engagement, satisfaction, what the issues are actually. And for the top of the company, we're doing more uh, qualitative uh, uh, work on recruitment, on diversifying backgrounds, and on fighting against any sort of bias. Yeah. All right, let's lighten the mood a little bit, Frank. Let's talk about the Super Bowl. We know who the two finalists are, or however you describe them. I don't know if that's Conference right. champions. Conference champions, yes. Sorry about that. And, um, yeah, well, I was watching one of the games, and I was rooting for the Cincinnati Bengals because... Uh, my wife's from Kentucky, and the, the, the Cincinnati airport is in Kentucky, as, as everyone is, knows yes. who's flown in there. So, um, Kentucky doesn't have a team, so that, that didn't work out enough. for us. It was a close game, though. Yeah, it was. It was a good game. It's possibly a questionable officiating towards the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, won't get too far into that, though. So, it's a really good matchup. Kansas City and, and Philadelphia are two excellent teams. It it should do really well in the ratings. And this year is also going to be the return of, of things like the in-person Super Bowl advertising account team war rooms, you know, in which um, groups of people, including the social and digital strategists and the people who worked on the commercials, you know, all watch it together during the game. And that's a tradition. I think it's great. It's, that's, um, that's coming back for the creative agencies and then for the PR agencies that work with them as well. So that's terrific. Um, you know, we've, we've had a lot of previews of the ads. I think M&M's is the one taking up, taking a yeah, lot of the air definitely. out of the room and the, you know, the spokes candy concept. And I, I, I think they've acknowledged it's a stunt. Gerben Greta, the spokes candies, and they're going to do something on Super Bowl night. So we'll be uh, watching. Sabrina Sanchez called yes. that out early, didn't she? Formerly of this Paris now <laughs> campaign. That's right. Um, there's a lot. I'm, I'm, Remember last year, it was just, it's, it felt like wall-to-wall crypto ads for a while. I doubt yeah. we're going to see <laughs> yeah. that this year. Um, it, it's, it is going to be interesting to see what, what the vibe is, isn't it? Yeah. Will, will Anheuser-Busch be back? Will Budweiser be back? Well, and, and um, gambling is part of one of the big ads uh, right. for the first time yeah. with, with this issue of, of can, um, can Gronk kick a, a 30-yard field goal, which, which trust me, for 
more to uh, the point can this 49ers guy kick a foot was it the- <laughs> well they're, they're not they're yeah. out of it I but, know. Oh, yeah, yeah. um but which is a lot harder than it looks by the way yeah, uh so um and, I can and there's a lot right the bar that. when i'm playing football which yeah. when the objective is to get it underneath the bar yeah so. well it's but it's i think the ratings are going to be terrific <laughs> Sorry, soccer. I, I think they're going to be better than they've been uh in a few years just because the matchup is is very very good they're two popular teams and um will Mahomes be fit He's got a couple well, of he's, weeks. Well, he's not. I mean, he's not going to be 100%. But he'll have a couple of weeks at yeah, least. He'll, yeah, he's going to have to play her. Yeah, so, yeah. so uh, Ulrika, AXA, I think, supports a lot of sports in different parts of the world. So how do you work, you know, how do you work around those activations? Do you support, is it cricket? Is that one of the su- sports that AXA <laughs> supports? I'm just no. showing my English bias here, but. Yes, yes. So just to say that I've never been able to understand the rules of American football. So we, we, we stick to what we know, which is uh, soccer. And we um, no, so we, we have a wonderful partnership with Liverpool. We're training partners. So we, we uh, yeah. you know, we sponsor the training kit, the training centers and uh, and our latest activation, which is a pretty nice project, is that we give up some of our rights for amateur clubs across Europe to be able to train in Liverpool, meet the teams. Um, we had a wonderful session with some girls club, amateur 13-year-olds with legend Michael Owen. So that's, you know, we're very fond of this partnership and we feel very close to the values of the club. And that we do, um, we support women's sports actually in several yeah, well, of our different countries. Very promising, yeah. uh, I think, field for, for, for advertising for brands and for meaningful partnerships. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, I prefer to think of Michael Owen as a Manchester United legend because he only won the Premiership when he played for United. But anyway, let's not get into those sort of <laughs> intra-club um, debates. But uh, yeah, well, that's good to hear. All right, Frank, there's loads of agency moves and uh, M and A and all sorts of stuff going on this there's, week. There's sure round it up for us. There sure is, and and it's one of those things. It's one of those times that makes you question where the industry economy is at in a good way because there are there still continue to be a lot of people moves and a lot of high level uh promotions and people moves and a lot of MA. Uh so we'll see if this pace keeps up for the coming months. So um there's a new North America CEO at Hotwire. That's Heather Kraft. Uh, she was most recently Hotwire's North America co-president with Laura McDonald and Laura is moving over to the role of uh, global um, chief growth officer. Uh, they're going to keep open the North America president role. Um, Heather Kernahan was named North America CEO in December uh, 2019 before becoming global CEO in 2021. Cision uh, has a new uh, chief executive officer, and that's Callie Tran. Brandon Crawley had been serving as the interim CEO since last February. Uh, so this is interesting because uh, Brandon Crawley was also um, – he was also a managing director of Platinum Equity. So he was from the parent company and not necessarily from Cision. Um, so interested to see where uh, Cali takes the company. That's um, because Cision is just such a big player in communications technology. In comms tech, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Ulta Beauty has moved to an interesting uh, agency roster model now with two consumer AORs. Um, so they brought on Hunter to handle their consumer facing media relations, but they continue to work with Zeno Group. Both of the firms uh, are AOR. Hunter is going to manage more of the consumer facing media relations. Zeno is going to handle more thought leadership, executive visibility and equity storytelling efforts. Mike Worldwide has bought MRB 
public relations. A lot of people named Michael floating around in the store. <laughs> um, MRB, well known as a B2B technology boutique. It's been around for 20 years and has always been an interesting little shop. And they have boasted 174% revenue growth in 2022. Uh, they're going to be a part of MWW's tech practice. Um and that's about all we have for the agency. Yeah, I think Finn Partners is buying week. another, but then it's another week they're buying another agency, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Yes, Otroy Creative yeah. is uh, going to be the latest part of uh, Finn Partners. Um, Ulrika, do you have a global AOR or do you tend to have agencies in each region? How do you sort of uh, work with the No, we, we, we work with two global agencies. We have Publicis for Creative and WPP for Media. And okay. we work with them across our, our operations. And how about PR? PR? Um, no, PR would be more local local uh, chosen agencies. Got it. So we Got work it. with Edelman here in the U.S. and with uh, French French companies, French boutiques in France. Got it. Got it. And, uh, yeah. All right. Great. Well, it's been fascinating to chat to you, Ulrika. Thanks for joining us. And uh, good fortune. And let's hope you're, the positivity comes to fruition in 2023 that's a good way to think about the year i think so thanks so much for joining us thank you both thanks a lot and don't forget our pr week us awards the oscars of the pr industry they're in new york on the 16th of march so don't miss the big night on the pr calendar our crisis communications conference that's a launch event is in dc on the 12th and 13th of april really looking forward to that i hope you can come and uh, join us for that don't forget our healthcare conference and awards in new york on uh, the 24th of may and the agency business report is open for submissions so if you're an agency make sure you've got your form and that you're filling that out and finally the global awards they're in london on the 9th of May. So looking forward to that. It's going to be a fun night. And uh, hopefully you can join us there, Ulrika, maybe, for the Global Awards. I will. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, that would be great to see you there. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. PR Week.